Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Welcome back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight we're going a bit off the derails. We're going off track from what we normally talk about, and we're going to talk a lot about solo play. We're not talking about solo play in Blood Red Skies. We're going to talk to the man whose company bears his name. The guy that brought us Hornet Leader and Thunderbolt Apache Leader years ago has come out with a lot more games in the Leader series, has brought out the Warfighter series, and a bunch of other solo play games. Tonight, we're going to talk to Dan Verson of Dan Verson Games. Dan, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Oh, thanks for being on the podcast. Glad uh, glad to have you on. And of course, we've got Brett on. So Brett, with his zero knowledge of Dan Verson games, <laughs> is going to contribute right. and, and ask some questions. <laughs> I'm going to be a lurker tonight. Hey, everybody. It's good to have you back on, Brett. Sorry we couldn't have Chris on. He's actually having to do that schoolwork thing again, the problem of going back to school as a as an adult education guy. Uh, so he, he'll skip out on us, but uh, he might have something arriving on his doorstep here soon uh, that might help him understand some of these uh, DVG games. <laughs> well, Dan, I've, I've gone out there and I've, you know, obviously spent a lot of time building my knowledge about about your company that I, I really knew nothing about, because I'll be honest, I played Hornet Leader, Thunderbolt Apache Leader years ago, um, and obviously those were under the GMT brand, and so that's that's right. kind of where I knew your work. Uh, and then I, I really got out of that style of wargaming for a long time. And so I came back and I'm like, huh, I wonder whatever happened to this guy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, he has his own company now. Oh, crap, he's got a lot of games. Um, so can, tell us how you went from developing for other people to kind of saying, all right, I want to branch out and do my own thing. Well, we had our very first game came out in 1988, and that was Modern Naval Battles, which got released through 3W Worldwide Wargaming. And at the time, it was my wife and I, Holly, and I would do the design work, she would do the development work, and we worked as independent contractors for GMT and Avalon Hill and Decision Games for years. And at one point, it was Holly's idea. She said, hey, you know, we've designed the games, we've developed them, we've worked with artists, we've had interfacing with the printers. Why don't we like put our own game together and see how it goes? And so we gave it some thought. And our very first game that was a DVG design title was Field Commander Rommel. And we chose that because it was World War II, which is like the center of the hobby. And also we wanted to make it solitaire Because at the time, it was kind of a transition in the industry. People were having a harder time getting together to play games. And so we figured, okay, let's make it solitaire. And that went really well. We got the funding for it. Our very first print run, I think, was 500 copies. Just And at the time, we were in a condo. And we actually had the delivery truck show up in the driveway of the condo, unloaded like half a dozen pallets into the garage. And we'd bring them in case by case into the living room where we had tables set up, family and friends then helped us to pack it out, put on the stickers, car load by car load, taking them off to the post office. And it was it went well. And that led to a reprinting reversion of Modern Naval Battles. And then we did the new Down in Flame series and we did Alexander and as we went on, at some point we thought, hey, we've got these existing designs out there that the rights had reverted with Hornet Leader and Thunderbolt Apache Leader. And so we then looked at those and thought, well, there's some clunky aspects because by that time those designs were- No, no, they weren't clunky. (laughs) They were wonderful. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) There was a lot of prestige during those things. Yes, yes. And I do laugh at that. So that that was one of the things when I read your comments now after, you know, Hornet Leader 2 and Hornet Leader Carrier Air Operations and your own words of, yeah, I found the system left a little bit to be desired. I'm like, I don't know what Dan's talking about. It ages well. No, no, there, there, there were things as I got back into Hornet Leader. I'm like, I don't remember this many roles just to shoot a stupid yeah. air-to-air missile. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if you look at like the number of charts in Thunderbolt and Hornet at the time, there were charts for everything. Your modifiers. Yes, there and, were. <laughs> and so we took all of that 
and just basically streamlined it. Because like one of the things I try to do with a game is it's usually based on some kind of a fictional inspiration. Like modern naval battles take came from the Tom Clancy books, Red October, um, Red Storm. And with games like Hornet Leader, it came from movies like Top Gun of all of its problems that it had. <laughs> no, but, it was it was historically accurate. I don't know what you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> Brett has and, learned not to ask me about naval aviation and Top Gun. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever they did in that movie, whatever. Enjoy all the flying scenes. It's nothing like that. <laughs> yeah. And what I liked about it was it brought a lot of people's interest into aviation and gaming. And they soon learned that, you know, not a lot of gunfighting F-14s out there. But, you know, it was Tom Cruise, so that was cool. And so what I try to do in the games is the topics that we cover, things like being a fighter pilot, being a special forces operator, are very complicated topics that take years of training and understanding. And they're very involved. And so what I try to do is squeeze that down to make it approachable by people to the point where I don't try to get every last detail in there. My goal is to not get something wrong. So if we have a game rule, it should not contradict reality, even though I don't include all of reality. Um, So I try to get the fun points in there of being a fighter pilot, maneuvering, lining up the shot, launching the missile, Um, like with our locked on game. It was originally two or more players, but then we came out with a solitaire version. So it's down in flames, except with jets and missiles. And it's the fun of lining up the shot and you've got to be at the right range at the right positioning to an enemy aircraft based on your missile seeker type. And it's a lot of fun when you play that tone card and say, I've got tone. And I started off gaming with old games like Air War, Air Superiority. Oh, don't call them old games. You're making me feel old when you do that. I, I never played Air Superiority. I have a few of the books here, but I played Air War. And as people have heard me say, I think I played it twice. And that took right. like a year of my life to play it twice. Uh, yeah. And I put it down. But, yeah, you know, it, yes, I remember the old SPI games. Thank you. Right. <laughs> and like with Air War, it was a great Costikian game who then went on to work at West stand and he's like star wars and awesome designer but it was a very heavy design of lots of counters and math and just and so i tried to take those mechanisms in hornet leader down in flames warfighter squeeze them down so that basically you get like the hollywood version of the game so you get the fun part you know you're dropping bombs on targets you're firing missiles and without going into all of the complexities that have to go through a pilot or a soldier's mind to line up that shot or you know do those operations. So that's been kind of the motivation. And we have done some multiplayer games over the years, but one of the things that we really hit on that's worked well for us is the warfighter system where it's for one or more players. So that way I can play solo against the system and you got all of those rules. I can also play with other people and we're all playing cooperatively against the system, same rules, we're playing as a team. And at least personally, I like that better because that way we're like cheering for each other and we're winning or losing as a team. So at the end of the battle, either we've all won or no one's won, and right. it's a lot more, at least for me, it's a lot more fun that way. Yeah, and, and I really haven't dabbled with Warfighter. I'll be honest, I only saw it, uh, gosh, probably a, maybe six months ago or something like that. I didn't even realize it was out there. Uh, and so all of a sudden, I'm like, I'll get to that. I'll, I'll come back okay. to Warfighter. And I, and I went out and actually bought the DLC on Tabletop Sim. Oh, yeah. Because uh, that was my excuse. I'm like, I've got to see how DLC is done. I've got to see how a professional war game is introduced in, in Tabletop uh, Simulator. Uh, and so I've actually taken a look at some cards, flipped through the rules a little bit, but I have zero understanding of how it works right now. So that's that's one of my okay. projects for the, the rest of uh, the lockdown and the isolation period is to uh, is to really dig in because it's there's a lot of interest um, to me in cooperative yet AI opponent kind of games, uh, because I think there's a lot of times that that people want to play a cooperative mission and, and maybe especially like we Brett and I see in Blood Red Skies, people want to fly the bombers. They want to have someone else fly the fighters. They want to see if they can accomplish the mission together. But then finding that third person to play the bandits, sometimes that is a bridge too far. Um, right. And so sometimes 
as people have said, hey, can we can we come up with some AI for the bandits? Can we, you know, make things a little more um, uh, a little lower cost of entry in that sense for for the number of people? Um, because sometimes it is hard just to get two people together to play, much less getting that third opponent in there. Um, yeah, that's true. I've also found that cooperative games are a much better way of getting new people into the hobby. Because if you're an experienced player and you're sitting across the table from some guy who's playing it for his first time, it's very difficult. He's likely to lose. And that's not a good way to introduce somebody. You know, here's four hours of your life. You just lost. You know? <laughs> that, that would be squad leader in a nutshell for me, I think. Right. <laughs> well, what, what fun. I wasted the whole day and I still lost. Yeah, and, it's, <laughs> and it's if he's on your team and you're playing cooperatively, then it becomes a much more team spirited kind of thing. And at the end of it, if you both won, if you both lost, whatever, it's still fun talking about over pizza. Right. Well, and I'm going to throw it back to Brett because I think that that pretty much covers your experience right there in Blood Red Skies is getting in there and continuing to play against experienced players. You're like, well, I got tabled again. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, what, are, what are kind of your thoughts about cooperative versus, uh, you know, versus head to head kind of play like we've had a lot of times in Blood Red Skies? Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, uh as Dan was talking about that, I was like, man, I want to get in on that. <laughs> you, you know, you, you're new to the game too, but you have a better understanding of rules and stuff. So I don't think I don't he has a warfighter expansion for logistics. So I, I don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't think he, I don't think there's a ranger logistics expansion in there. So <laughs> you and you and Brett are out of luck or you and Chris are out of luck. So <laughs> we'll, we'll let you be a warfighter. We'll let you be a trigger puller. <laughs> not, not that I was either. So, <laughs> a lot of what you were saying, Dan, when you were describing, you know, the you were saying about, uh, you know, trying to be accurate, not get anything, you know, wrong. I guess in the rule set or whatever, it reminded me a lot of what I've heard authors say when they're writing a scene. I guess in a book, maybe they have some interest in, but you know, maybe they're writing about something that they haven't done themselves, and that same sort of pressure, I guess, to you know, not screw it up so that somebody who really does fly P-51 Mustangs reads that that dogfight and, you know, tears it apart and they can't suspend disbelief. I've heard authors say that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And it is difficult because I've read a lot of research books. I've seen the movies, but I my only experience flying in airplanes has been as an airline passenger, except for one flight. Um, for a birthday present, Holly bought me one of those intro flights in a private plane. And so I did actually get to take the controls for a couple minutes. And it was a lot of fun. Um, it was surprising to me how bumpy an airplane is, because I just pictured it being like a car. And every time it would go up, down, bank, it's like, you know, luckily, you know, the real pilot was there, but it's, it gets your attention when you start seeing the horizon bouncing around there. Yeah. I laugh. A lot of people just have no frame of reference of that, that aviation is physically demanding one because of the stresses of the turbulence and fighting the airplane and everything else and, and weather. Um, and then it just becomes exhausting mentally in, in a lot of ways because you're, as, as your pilot was probably doing, constantly calculating fuel, seeing, you know, how long to the next airport or, or, or nav aid that he's going to mm -hmm. use. And, and so there's constantly stuff going on. And sure, there's times of sheer boredom as you're, you know, traveling long distances. But a lot of times, uh, you know, especially in the terminal area around a lot of airfields, probably where you were um, out there in, in SoCal, there's probably a lot of other traffic and a lot of other things keeping your pilot busy um, that, that wears yeah. you down fast. <laughs> Yeah, and I wasn't even having to worry about that. For me, like I'm used to driving, and pretty much as long as you keep your hands on the wheel, the car just kind of goes down the road. Whereas in an aircraft, even though I wasn't manipulating the controls, if I lost focus for a few seconds, I would notice that the plane had banked or dived or, oh, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and so that took a lot of getting used to is that things change without me paying attention to them. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and, you know, it's it's just it's one of those things you don't have a frame of reference of. And I use, um, you know, kind of my experience the first time I spent 24 hours on a submarine. You, you think you've seen all the movies you've seen, you know, it, every every Hollywood depiction of submarine life and then you go even spend 24 hours you're like 
oh, this is nothing like any of the movies. <laughs> it's 10 times more claustrophobic and 100 times more boring. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things that it's it's pretty cool to go out, I'm, I'm sure, as a game designer and, and get feedback. And I'm sure it's also frustrating at times because you, you probably have a feeling of, well, if someone had told me that's how it works, I would have put that in right. the game, but no one told me. So I, I know there's always a, a tension there that there's only so much information you sometimes get and you, you design to what you know, you know. Right. It's funny you mentioned cooperative play because uh, I was recently listening to a podcast that was describing how an F-35 is employed and some of the things about that aircraft particularly. And as I recall the discussion of what, you know, typical, I guess, uh, uh, Battlesphere, you know, it looks like, I guess, as those aircraft are going in, that sounds exactly like kind of how I remember the description, sort of like a cooperative. I mean, if you were going to make that simulate that, it'd be like a cooperative play where you've got a bunch of guys doing that mission and some kind of AI represents the bad guy. And uh, that, yeah, don't, don't, don't give Dan any ideas because F-35 <laughs> leader would be the most boring game ever. However, you kill everybody in the first turn. So, you know, <laughs> No, that, you know, it's funny when you, you talk about that for especially modern aviation. And I think you see it as you go from World War II into Korea, Vietnam, and now into the modern kind of strike package era, how things are so much more cooperative. Because I know you had that in Hornet Leader with the ability to have EA-6s, the ability to have F-14s. You carry that on. And then obviously um, the ability uh, to have the Thunderbolt Apache leader, Hornet leader crossover and and combining air operations and which something I've never tried. I, I don't have the uh, I haven't had the patience to ever do that. Um, but, you know, that's that's one of the interesting things that I'm sure as as we've gone from historical eras, I know when everyone looks at like blood red skies in World War Two, they think, well, what am I going to field as a squadron of airplanes? I know that as we've been doing a lot of the playtesting for the Vietnam side, it's suddenly been, what's that mix of airplanes? Or even right. if they're all the same airframe, what are the roles they're flying? Because some are going to be wild weasels, some are going to be bomb trucks, some are going to be MIG cap. And and trying to to balance that that change so you have a, a feeling that, that you're flying separate missions, even though it may be the same F-4, F-14, F-18 airframe. They've all got, uh, got all have different roles out there. Yeah, I think that that's a great point is as the technology and tactics have developed, you get more of, I guess, maybe like a football team kind of approach where different players on the team have different, you know, specific jobs, but the overall goal of everyone is to get the ball into the end zone. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the neat things with, you know, some of the the concepts, at least. And once again, I haven't played the the Hornet Leader Carrier Air Operations version, but at least in the original Hornet Leader, the ability to say, all right, I'm going to I'm going to sculpt this strike package and make the decisions, at least Hornet wise, what I want to carry, who I want to commit to being in an air to air role, who's going to be um, in a kind of a air to ground suppression role, and then who's going to be my strikers and definitely go to the target. So it's uh, I will admit I've gone out there and read some of the rules for uh, for the new version and still scratch my head because I'm hard enough to always figure them out. I'm like, okay, so there's less die rolling. This is good for me. Fewer tables to look at. Um, but I haven't actually sat down and, and played it through. I tried to I tried to jump on and use the free version on uh, Tabletop uh, Simulator. And and I'm one of those guys that if it's cards, I, I really have to feel the cards and, and try all that. Oh, so okay. it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to me to try to play some of these um, in absentia via Tabletop uh, Sim and, and do card-based games that way because it's, it's just not my uh, – it's not what I'm used to. And I think that's what we're seeing now, at least in the current – pandemic environment is interesting to see how many people have have been willing to adopt other techniques and other gaming styles that they're not used to um, because most of the people from our background that are that are playing blood red skies or some of the other miniatures based aviation games they're used to the physical feel of the miniature and spending a lot of time painting the miniature and all those kind of things and now we've asked them Go to Tabletop Sim. The, the miniature's there, and it's it's one color. It's not fancy, right. but you still are doing the same game. You're still fighting the same dogfights. You're still, you know, working with someone uh, to to have that same uh, gaming experience. So I think that's that's going to be interesting to see and, and see how that that balances for solo games and for um, and for multiplayer games with with the interaction there. Yeah, I think that you know this will go on however long as it does. And then when we come out of this, it's going to be interesting to see what are the long-term effects, because at least at DVG, we've seen a real spike in all of our solitaire um, titles. And I'm curious as to, you know, how is that going to go on? 
And what's especially exciting for me is lots of new faces placing orders. And because um, two of the people at the company, my son, Kevin, and his wife, Sarah, Sarah's more of our online presence, totally in charge of all of the customer service. Kevin has basically spent his entire life gaming and he went from play testing to developing games and now he's designing games. And now he's kind of moving into like a project manager kind of thing because we're working with like half a dozen to a dozen outside people. And so he has his own internal game projects that he's working on. But right now, probably half of his time is actually spent interfacing with the outside designers to get all of their projects moved along. And so luckily, we had a very good online presence coming into this. And so it's been really great for us. Um, not a lot of transitioning needed. They're both really well liked online. And I've been very happy with everything that's happened with that. So it'll be interesting to see how things go. Well, that, that's a good segue into kind of my next uh, question. You know, I see you've talked about the consistent upgrading of your warehouse facilities. And, and that oh, constantly, yeah. you, you know, you went from working inside your living room and suckering family members into putting stickers on boxes <laughs> to, okay, we'll buy a small storage facility. Oh, wait, that was not big enough. Okay, we'll buy another one. Wait, we're going to knock a wall out, you know, to yeah. now the, what do you have, a 4,000, 6,000 foot square warehouse, something something big? <laughs> yeah, right now, um, yeah, the progression is we started off with a condo and we'd have to move the cars out of the garage, park them on the street for a couple of weeks because the entire garage was pallets full of games. And then we ended up having the garage full and getting a second shipment in. So at that point, we started lining the walls of the condo. So we lost the living room. The kids had boxes in their bedrooms. We had boxes in the hall. It was basically just this like this dungeon of game boxes. And that's why I'll never be a game designer. My wife would yeah. throw me out of the house if I, <laughs> if I did that. It, it would be all over at that point. <laughs> and so at that point, we decided, okay, we're going to take a major step here. We're going to get one of those um, self-storage 300 square foot things. And we figured, and we moved in the games and we took up like half of that unit and we figured we're done. This is all we will ever need. And then we designed some more games. That one filled up. We then got a thousand square foot unit and it looked massive. It was like, you know, you could like build airplanes in this thing is how it looked to us. And within a year or so that filled up and we got our first new warehouse, which is 2,200 square feet. And again, it's like, you know, the games are like hiding in this back corner of the warehouse and then more shipments come in, more designs. And luckily, the unit right next to it, was another 1,600 square feet, became available. So we asked the company, and they said, sure, sign a lease, we'll punch a hole through. So they put a hole through the wall, um, a little archway thing big enough to like, take pallet jacks. And we figured we're fine, filled that up, and now we, we have a third unit. So yeah, we're up to about 6,000 square feet in that facility, and it's... You know, I'm thinking we have maybe another six months to a year before we need another one. And that's one of those things where you start running into problems as your business grows is you find these weird gaps. Like you can get storage facilities for about 2,000, 3,000 square feet. But then there's like a gap where it jumps up to like 15,000. But finding a good storage space at about six to 8,000 square feet I guess there just isn't much of a demand for them. And so that's one of the problems that we're going to be running into here in about a year. I guess and it's a good so, problem to have. Yeah. Success is, <laughs> is a terrible problem. That's horrible. No, that's yeah, that's good yeah. to hear. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things you, you always wonder in the era of so much being online and so much being digitized in video games. Uh, the, the question has always become, you know, what are in-print games doing? And obviously the world that Brett and I come from, the miniatures-based game, there's tons of Kickstarters out there right. that, are, that are doing, you know, you know, very professionally produced miniatures-based games because they can get them made, the miniatures made in China, get them done mass-produced. Uh, there's not as near much overhead. Um, but it's really good to see print board games that I'm used to still going through the same kind of revolution um, and that there's there's still that much demand for them out there, uh, which okay. at least makes has makes us old guys have a warm and fuzzy. It may not be uh, may not be Avalon Hill titles. It may be Danvers and Game titles, but <laughs> you know, we're quite happy to see the, the hobby keep keep expanding that way. 
Yeah, um, Kickstarter has been a major boost, I think, for the hobby in general, and then also DVG specifically, because it's allowed us to get a much better feedback and feel for what people want, what kind of content they want, how big a print runs to make. And also, like printers want their money up front, which is always a problem for a small business. Kickstarter allows us to produce games that are bigger, better than we ever could have, because we get that Kickstarter money up front, we're able to pay the printing bills, and it's been tremendously good for us. Um, it's allowed for bigger print runs. It's also allowed for a lot more expansions. Well, and like, that's that's what surprised me with Thunderbolt uh, Apache leaders. I rolled in knowing nothing of what you were doing at that point, and and the guys at No Dice No Glory are like, "You're going to go pick it up." I'm like, "Of course, I'm going to go pick it up. Whatever. <laughs> Let me go to Kickstarter." I'm like, "Oh, wait a minute. There's options. Oh, there's a lot of right. options here. There's more expansions." So, so it, it surprised me uh, just the ability it gave you to offer so many different things and so much custom content um, that. That, that really you wouldn't get if you're making a small print run for, you know, just regular distribution via via game channels, I think. Right, because without Kickstarter, you just don't have the cash on hand. Absolutely. To like right now, we have, I would say, about 10 core games and about 40 to 50 expansions wow. somewhere in the printing cycle right now. And we'll be getting the first wave of those back probably in about four to six weeks, I think. And then we have three different waves that are going through the process right now. And without, you know, Kickstarter, that just wouldn't be possible because the printing bills get very scary. Like, you know, I went to a convention and they asked me to like to do a little talk on, hey, what's it like to be a game design, you know, company publisher. And one of the questions was, after you put out a few games, when does it stop being scary? And the answer is it never does because your company grows and you have, you know, the games that we produce now, they're higher quality components, so they cost more, the print runs are bigger, there's more design time, more art time, a whole lot more money is invested. And so, whereas our first game, we could have put on a credit card, basically. I think the printing cost for Rommel was something like maybe $2,000 or something else. So a decent chunk of money, but not, you know, it's something that's not life-threatening if things go bad. Now, <laughs> it's still scary because at this point, with the amount of printing that we have going on, we could buy like a house. <laughs> yeah. And to know, it's just so, it's always scary. And well, but that's that's business. And I, I try to explain that to a lot of people because it's it's very similar in in my aviation photography workshop world that I run in. Uh, the the checks were pretty small when you were hiring one airplane and maybe some really cheap, you know, general aviation airplanes to fly as photo subjects. And then all of a sudden when you're paying for the gas in a B-25 and scheduling a civilian cargo airplane to carry your photographers, you're like, there's a lot of zeros on that check. Yeah. I'm writing. <laughs> Like, whoo, I don't get paid that much. Ooh, yeah, in a long time. Yeah. So it's that you know, that's one of the good and bad things about business. I think I think for a lot of people who who aspire to be game designers or aspire to be, you know, part of the industry, they don't realize it. Sometimes the the dollars changing hands out there are still extravagant. And that's why yeah. things like Kickstarter are so helpful. Um, that you don't necessarily need the backing of a company. You have the backing of your supporters that say, I think it's a great idea, or I know your past performance, as it was with me with Thunderbolt Apache Leader. I'm like, I, I'm sure I could count on one hand the number of times I played that uh, back in the in the late 1990s. But I was like, I liked it that much then. I know I'm going to like what he's done now. So it was it was very easy for me to go. Absolutely, I want to support that. Uh, so don't disappoint me. <laughs> oh. oh yeah, Thunderbolt is at the printer now, and it with its new expansions. It's what I like about the expansions is you have the core game. The expansions then allow you to do like Blackhawk missions where you send in your Thunderbolts and your Apaches and they're busy blowing up the bad guys. But there's also some kind of a ground objective out there on one of those hexes where you actually have to land some special forces guys who then run around in that hex shooting the bad guys in order to take out the enemy general or rescue the hostage or, you know, free the POW, you know, whatever it happens to be. And what I like about it 
is we've been able to sequence it all into Thunderbolt's normal sequence of play. And so it's all smooth because you've got the guys overhead blowing up the tanks with their cannons. You've got the guys running around on the ground. And of course you have your normal mission time. So you're planning it out of, okay, the guys deploy on this turn, they're gonna shoot the guy hopefully by that turn, get back into the helicopter to get off the map and not start running out of fuel or something. And it makes, it's a very cinematic kind of experience because you've got now this like dual level kind of play going on. And you also have pop-ups coming up. And so you're like, your soldiers are like right in the middle of their ground missions, some pop-up target appears that's about to threaten them. So then you have to redirect one of your helicopters to come in to take out this threat before it engages the soldiers. And it's a whole lot of fun. So I can tell you obviously have Brett's interest on this one. Brett, right now it's salivating. Going, I can be a ranger again. This is awesome. You can. Yeah, right. No, no Brett, they're not going to calculate how many C5 loads it takes to get all the rangers deployed overseas. But yes, you can be a ranger again. All right, all right. Now that, that yeah. sounds like it's going to be really interesting. So I, I'm, I'm excited to see that uh, when that ships. Um, and and I've, I'm really excited to have seen a couple of the different leaders titles. Because once again, I only knew it from years ago under the GMT brand, Hornet leader and Thunderbolt Apache leader. Um, and then I come back in and start getting back into wargaming. And all of a sudden I go, wait a minute. You know, this guy's got a lot more titles out there. Phantom leader, IAF leader, uh, B-17 leader, <laughs> the, right. well, yeah, the submarines Gato leader. <laughs> you know, I, I sit there and go, wow, this might be a few too many games for me to acquire. As I <laughs> I, jo- I jokingly told you the other day, I was, I was bored in, in quarantine. And I'm like, I'll take that, 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 that. And I'm like, I will never play all those games even in the next year. I'm like, let me take those out of my cart. Let me be reasonable about this and not spend uh, all of my money, uh, all of my salary this month on, on games. Um, but it's but it's a neat offering when you look at it. The the leader series overall, at least for me as a war gamer, is is neat because you have so many different things out there and so many different topics. Was it was it kind of one thought process about about how to simulate squadron operations that led you down the leader path, or was it saying, all right, there's a there's a mechanic involved in the mission planning and deciding real time what you're going to do that you then said, oh, I could do that for a B seventeen, I could do that for a submarine. You know, how did you how did you expand the leader range? Right. Basically, from my point of view, the leader series is you're commanding a group of something um, in the submarines. Uh, Gato leader and U-boat leader tends to be more like one sub, but you do command a fleet of them. But the basic premise of all of the leader games is you have a group of units that are piloted or driven by or you know commanded by people. And then in front of the player, we then place a challenge. We say, okay, you need to fly your Hornets to this target. You need to inflict so much air to ground damage on the target itself. But there's also going to be surface to air missile sites. There's going to likely be bandits in the area. You then have a limited number of resources in the form of weight points of how many bombs and missiles can you stick onto your airplanes. And how do you then want to go about accomplishing this puzzle? And then we threw in kind of a human factor of your pilots are rated for skill level, everything from newbie up through legendary. And the nice thing about the system is you naturally want to fly your more experienced pilots every day. But of course, as they fly, they gain stress, which will eventually degrade their skills and might even have them lead your squadron. So when do you cycle in your newbie pilots versus, you know, and how do you mix all of that up? And one of the things I especially like that's developed out of the leader game and the warfighter series is that when you put cards in front of people and they go through various missions and they level up and you've now kind of customized them, people get an emotional attachment to these guys, even though they're just little pieces of cardboard. And when they have to put those guys in danger, we've gotten a lot of emails from people of, I have my favorite pilot because I'll always remember on mission two, he made that lucky die roll and saved the mission. And now there's a tough mission. There's a lot of SAM sites in the area. He's the best guy to go fly and take those SAMs out, but it's also putting him at risk. And even though it's nothing in the game mechanics, I don't want to do that because there's an emotional attachment to this guy. And to me, those are the most fun kind of letters to read. 
Um, one of the things I want to say, DVG has an amazing group of fans. We're in constant contact with them. Sarah gets emails from them all the time, and they're wonderfully supportive. And like an example, like 10 years ago, I got a letter from a guy who said, I'm a big fan of Hornet Leader. I know you're coming out with an upgrade for Phantom Leader. Um, I have a dog. His name is Bat Dog. And he sent me a picture. It's this adorable, you know, black dog with these big old ears. And he said, can you have a pilot in Phantom Leader called Bat Dog? And I said, sure, you know. And so if you look in Phantom Leader, there's a pilot there called Bat Dog. And that's really Oh, that's brilliant. Brilliant. And then... It was one of those things where, you know, so we put in Bat Dog, we go on, we're designing other games. And like five years later, I got another email from the guy and he said that Bat Dog had passed away and that whenever he plays Phantom, he always looks at that card. And it's just one of those special people connection things. It is. That's cool. And, you know, people in the office were crying, you know. And we never, we <laughs> no, never that, met that dog, but, you yeah, know. That's awesome. He, he became part of our world. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the I was reading an interesting article from some friends of mine that have a, a game store uh, in California, and they were talking about, you know, how do you deal with the difficulty of, in a role-playing game, your character dying? And it's it's very much the same thing in Hornet Leader when you get out there and, and you've groomed a couple of your aggressive pilots. You're like, all right, these guys, I know they're going to be able to make the mission happen and then one gets shot down and you're like really really yeah. how am i supposed to win any more of these stupid camp or missions in this campaign because now i'm down one of my guys and so you do get emotionally attached to him it's kind of funny um and and i you know i think I, I, that's one of the things i've liked about hornet leader I, I i can you know we can sit here all day and nitpick things that 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 either people who've flown F-18s would see differently or people who've been in the military would, would do differently about military operations. Um, but the thing that I enjoyed at least about the original Hornet leader is that you always have a balance of trying to maintain your aircraft, your people, the mission. It's, it's you never have enough assets to do everything you want to do. Um, right. And so sometimes it's, it's very frustrating because sometimes you're like, there is no way I can accomplish this. What's, what's the least egg on the face I could take <laughs> from right. CAG when, when he says you failed the mission. I'm like, but I didn't get anyone shot down. <laughs> you know, my, exactly. it, it sounds to me like it. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you were to tell me that that was something that uh, Department of the Navy or at some level informal or even formal is used as a maybe some kind of training method. I, I don't know. Is that is that the case? Is that is that far fetched? We have gotten some emails from people and back in the day, physical letters saying that at their base, they did play a lot of Hornet and they would make comparisons between their actual briefings and Hornet. And, you know, they kind of cross-reference each other. And one of the things that we did do a few years ago, um, Holly and I got invited down to San Diego to meet with the Boeing people. And they were working on some of their ship technologies and so they wanted us to come down and just show them how to play modern naval battles. And so we set up, they had like 30, 40 people there. So we set up like half a dozen tables and they played fleets and, you know, they're like missling and gunning each other and had a tremendously fun time. They were great to meet with. And what was fun is that at several of the tables, some of the people there who were all like vice presidents or, you know, there would be people literally at the table who would hold up one of the ship cards, one of the U.S. ship cards and say, you know what, I was the captain of that thing. And it was like, wow, <laughs> you know, and what was fun is several of the people at the tables would take kind of the swarm tactic of they take a bunch of little missile arm ships and on the other side of the table would be a guy with like a traditional Navy task force. And sometimes the uh, the carrier task force would win, sometimes the swarm would win. And afterwards, when the person in charge was kind of wrapping things up, he said, and one of the things we saw today that we've theorized in more formal ways is that swarm tactics against a traditional carrier task force do have value. And if you can get them in close enough into a small area like, you know, the Persian Gulf or something, you know, not so much open ocean, it can be a real threat, especially because the carrier is designed to have like these very big engagement ranges. And if you can take those away, 
pretty soon you've got, you know, suicide torpedo boats, you know, that you first see a mile or two off the ship, and that's a real problem for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the the neat things is playing out um, missions or playing out scenarios that are so hypothetical, you know, South China Sea kind of things, even in Hornet Leader. It's like there's no way we'd ever have force on force with the Chinese. But it makes it interesting to say, okay, what if all of a sudden every single bandit in there is a high quality bandit? You know, it's it's not me going in and beating up on, you know, in the original Hornet Leader, the Libyans or a Central American threat where, ooh, it's MiG 21s. (laughs) You know, it's and so suddenly your decision making process becomes very different um, as you as you deal through those kind of scenarios. So once again, I know I have plenty of uh, plenty of different leader games to play through. Hopefully, uh, I'll uh, I'll make some time here, and Brett's probably gonna look at me in shame and realize I should be playing miniatures <laughs> instead. But <laughs> but I'm gonna use the time to uh, to play some of the the leader games. Well, let's let's transition and talk a little bit about the Warfighter games because you alluded to a little bit about how that game works. But for those of us who are who are newbies to the Warfighter series, um, why why should I play a card game about special operations and and ground combat? What what should I be doing? Ah, here's the exciting story of Warfighter. It started off with the idea of we're going to do a card game. At the beginning of the mission, you choose your soldiers. You get to equip them with real-world weapons, M4s, M16s, law rockets. And we're going to give you a mission card. And that details how many resource points you get and how far away the objective card is. And then you're then going to lead your squad through a series of location cards going from basically point A to point B. You're going to encounter hostiles along the way. You're going to shoot them, blow them up, and you get to the objective card. And, you know, if you do it within your time limit, you win the game. And what was fun with Warfighter is taking, you know, basic weapons such as the M4 and giving it different burst modes in the game. So like one of the things I'm happiest about with Warfighter is the dice that you use to resolve attacks with. Whenever you do an attack die, use a D10. Whenever you're rolling for penetration, you roll a D6. And in order to take down a hostile, you have to hit your to hit number and overcome his cover. And if you get two successful die rolls, you inflict an EKIA. If one die roll is successful, you inflict a suppress, which means he can't shoot back at you, but he, you know, at the end of the turn, that suppress comes off and he's back in the combat. And if both die rolls fail, you just flat out miss. Built into your attack die roll, if you roll very low, in most weapons cases on a D10, it's like a two or less, you run out of ammo. So what happens is if I'm firing a weapon in semi mode, I roll one attack die and my one defeat cover die. If I roll in, if I choose to use burst mode, I get to use two attack dice. And if I go full auto, I get to use three. And so we've done our best to make sure that the fire modes are accurate per weapon type. So what happens is if you decide to go full auto with your weapon, you do get three chances to hit the bad guy which is all good, but it also gives you three chances to roll that two or less. And so built in is an automatic, just ammo usage kind of system. And so all in that simple die roll, you can take down the target, you can suppress them, you can miss them, you can run out of ammo. And if you use the option rules, you can also have your weapon jam. And so it's one of those things where Warfighter is kind of like the ground version of Hornet Leader in that it's a problem solving kind of thing. Because you know what your objective is. Your objective, let's say, is to go blow up a T-80 tank. So you know I better take some anti-tank weapons along with me, like a couple law rockets or something. Well, each of your guys is rated for how much stuff they can carry their loadout. And you also know that along the way, having a guy with a saw might be handy. Having guys with their M4s would be handy. Having a sniper who can stand back a card or two and directly take out the high threat targets is handy. And so it becomes one of these problem-solving things of, yes, it would be handy to give everyone a law rocket. And you will tear up the landscape for the first location card, maybe two, and then you're down to, like, harsh language. But... You know, there are times when you need grenades to take out the group of guys or to suppress them so you can get by them. And so what's happened with Warfighter is it started off as modern day with three expansions. And we designed it, then we kind of went on to other things. And people really liked it. (laughs) And so we came back and we did more modern. And then we did a World War II. 
And so right now we have lots of modern World War II. Um, I'm currently working on a fantasy design because kind of, I guess, the theme of a leader, Hornet leader type game is you have a squadron of things which then go out and working as a team, overcome obstacles to accomplish a task. In Warfighter, it's that same idea, except you're going from point A to point B, which works just fine in like a fantasy dungeon because you've got your fighter, your wizard, your cleric, your thief, and they're going in you know, monster room to monster room till eventually they get to the dragon. So it's the same idea. And one of the very cool things about Warfighter, which has taken many, many nights to get just right, is that all of the weapons and arrows are compatible. So if you want to take a modern SEAL team with M4s and law rockets back to fantasy time and take on a dragon, everything works. Excellent, you know? excellent. So it's been a lot of fun. Well, well and I... You know, people need to understand how hard that is. And and we joke uh, on the Lead Pursuit podcast because right now Blood Red Skies uh, is trying to dip its toes into Vietnam era. And it's been a very uh, dogfight centric game. And now all of a sudden you're dealing with uh, IFF systems, BVR missiles, SAMs, things that that are so out of the, the cadre of, of things you're used to. Um, it's it's been for us on the playtest team. It, it's been, at least in my mind, nothing short of a nightmare <laughs> to, yeah. to take a a well crafted dogfight system and go. I need to I need to push the boundaries of that and and do other things. Um, and so having it having a game be scalable and still be fun uh, that's definitely an accomplishment. And I, and I laughed when I saw that you were doing the fantasy one. I'm like. How is that going to work? <laughs> Once again, I, I had not played Warfighter at that point. I'm like, all right, I'll put that in the bin and I'll get to that later. Um, but but I think you hit on something important. I think when you said it's individual problem solving. And so many times I think we're used to the old choose your own adventure or even some of these uh, solo or cooperative play dungeon crawl kind of games where where it isn't uh, it's it's not always a problem to solve it's generally an encounter to overcome and oh, i think yeah. that that one of the tricks um at least that i enjoyed in hornet leader is is being able to foresee what the problem is and say okay i know there's a pretty good chance that i'm going to have capable bandits but that's a very hard target i have to take down so Am I more concerned about the bandits? Yeah, because they can jump me and they can cause my strikers to jettison their ordnance. So at the end of the day, I'm going to load everyone with a lot of air-to-air missiles and take the minimum number of bombs I can use to, right. to get by and, <laughs> and hope to accomplish with some kind of buffer in there, accomplish the mission. Um, and I think that's that's probably one of the challenges that I know you've gone through designing so many you know, solo play games is how do you how do you provide a challenge and a problem to be solved without it being... Um, too visible to the player where where you're really trying to make them think and trying to make them choose their resources and make them solve the problem without just making it a case of, is your sword bigger than the other guy's sword? You know, right. can, can I beat them into submission? What we've done, and I think that that's a good point, is how do you reveal information to the player? Because if you give him too much up front, there's no mystery. If you hide too much, he can't make decisions because it's all just a big mystery. And so the way that we approach it anyway is we layer the decision-making so that we give the player some information up front. Like in the case of Hornet Leader, you have a general idea what the SAMs are like. You can look to see what the general level of bandit defenses are, but you don't know exactly. And then when you get closer to the mission, you get a clearer picture of what's going on. And so what we do is we layer that reveal information-ness to the player and then the other thing that we do is we use spreadsheets a lot, like everything in the leader series, everything in the warfighter series, all of it is spreadsheeted. So that way we know that even when it comes down to hostels or locations or weapons, we know that a given location, it might have more hostels, it might have a higher entrance cost, it might have some negative or positive bonus. But we know that overall, every location card is equally difficult as all of the others and so that way it takes like a randomness out of it because one of the things i don't like in a game is i drew a card and because it's extra powerful or extra weak i now win or lose and i had nothing to do with it i just kind of drew the card and so that goes back kind of my background at alderac entertainment group aeg way back when around 2000 designing the 7c collectible card game 
is we had like great people there like Dave Williams and John Wick. And they taught me that in a collectible card game, your goal is to make every card equally powerful. And the more conditions you put onto a card of when it can be played, what it can be used against, you can make it more powerful. But your goal is to make all cards evenly powerful. That way, the luck of the draw has a minimal effect on gameplay. And even though we don't do CCGs anymore, that same philosophy is still there in all of our games. So that way, it takes that random draw element out of things. And then it also becomes like this little mini puzzle of the player of, if a card would normally give you a plus one bonus, but this card gives you a plus four bonus, but to play the card, you have to bring about this complicated situation somehow, then it becomes this reward for the player that if he can actually bring about that circumstance, he gets to play the huge card and demolish his enemy, but it's not a matter of luck. It's a matter of something he had to actively build towards in order to play. Yeah, and I think that's one of the the interesting parts as you add the card interaction. I know probably it's one of the the more challenging and also frustrating uh, parts of, of at least the leader games that I've played is, uh, and I'll call it the encounters, but it's the mission events because okay. there's just some of them that you really, you really can't foresee. And you know, that cards in the deck somewhere. And you're like, I just don't want to draw <laughs> five, the five Sam shots on egress or whatever it is. Right. And you draw that one and you go, all right, you're right. I should have brought wall to wall harms on this one, but I didn't, I chose to put, you know, Mark 83s on there instead. Um, but but I think that's interesting as you talk about balancing them because there is there is an element of as those of us who came from the 40k world talk about having to math hammer out a game and say, you know, I need to make sure that the ability to achieve the scenario's victory objectives are are doable because otherwise the game's no fun. And right. I may have built the the best simulation of launching torpedoes against a carrier in World War II. And if in the scenarios I build, nobody can ever achieve that. Who's going to want to play the game? Awesome. I got all my torpedo bombers shot down. Hey, maybe it is midway, but you know, it's, it's one of those things you're like, that's no fun. I need to, I need to balance that. And, and the fact that you guys go behind the scenes so much with the math piece of it, that, that, uh, that makes me feel better. Maybe I won't draw the bad cards this time. Uh, but, uh, but it, it, that's part of game design. And I think a lot of people lose because they, they often think of the Chrome, the cool cards, the cool events, the cool things. And they never think about, okay, what's the overall play of this? If someone gets all the bad cards back to back, I want to make sure they're not just totally demoralized and having no fun right. at the game, you know? Yeah. Although no, I, I had a few of those missions, I think, in Hornet later, but that's probably me, not you. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that we did address in the new Hornet leader is we tend to give people more options. Like, for example, when you're coming off the target, you can expend missiles in order to suppress some of those defenses. In some cases, you can also expend like SO points or, or stress. Um, so that way we make it more of a decision making on the player's part. Um, and basically it comes down to resource management. You know, do you have weapons, you have stress, you have SOs, you have experience points? You know, what do you have the most of right now that you want to divert and make this threat go away? And well, that's, you can keep it balanced. Yeah, so. and, and that's that's the tactical decisions that I think a lot of people sometimes um, either wish away or whatever in, in a lot of games. In and we've talked about it in Blood Red Skies a number of times that there's there's a lot of different assets you have, but the fact of the matter is I have to understand: is it worth burning advantage to do something? Is it worth delaying the inevitable and just keep turning with a bandit for another turn? You know, to to not have to expend a very vital resource at this point. Maybe I eat an opportunity to shoot at him to be shot at one more time sure he's going to get another boom shit he's going to he's going to rack up he's going to burn more of my resources but it puts me in an ability to put a kill shot on him the next turn and not right. to have not to have given up advantage not to have done all these other things so that i know brett always laughs when uh, when he and i play um because he accuses me of thinking like seven moves ahead and i'm like no no honestly i don't <laughs> i just i view it as a resource management i'll let you shoot at me if i know i can kill you the turn afterwards so yeah i get all proud of myself thinking i'm i've just pulled off an excellent uh, series of maneuvers so i can tail my opponent and i realize i've just tailed my own aircraft 
episodes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the wonderful problem you don't have in solo games. You're never accidentally shooting your own airplane. At least the, count- <laughs> the counters are colored. So I know I'm shooting the red guys. The blue guys are mine. Now, that, that's awesome. Uh, well, we're running out of time. Uh, we've burned a lot of our uh, our opportunity to chat with you. Uh, what I did want to ask was upcoming projects. You've talked about, you know, Fantasy Warfighter. I know you probably have a lot of other things in your in your kit bag of tricks that you're you're working on game wise. Uh, what are some of those things that you think, uh, especially solo players, especially aviation based uh, solo players would be interested in hearing about? Okay. Um, for the leader series, we have all kinds of things planned. Right now, we're working with an outside designer, Chuck Siegert, who is designing Zero Leader, which is the corresponding to Corsair Leader for World War II. And we're going to have all kinds of fun stuff in there where we're taking the core chassis of Corsair, but then customizing it more for the Japanese point of view. Whereas on the U.S. side, as the war went on, your pilots and aircraft got better and better. On the Japanese side, the pilot quality went down. They didn't have a chance to improve their aircraft that much. And so zero leader is going to feel a lot more like a desperate struggle because in the days of like Midway, you're doing just fine. But by the time you get to Iwo Jima, Okinawa, things are really bad. And you're going to be taking heavy squadron losses, lots of squadron turnover, whole different feel for things. Um, we also are working with Ian Martin, who is doing a World War One couple of games for us. He's doing Fokker Leader and Sopworth Camel Leader, along with expansions. And we're hoping to have both Zero and Sopworth, um, hopefully by the end of 2020, early 2021. Uh, we're also working with Dean Brown, who's doing Spruance Leader, which is a naval expansion where it's Cold War naval combat. You're going to command a naval task force, basically Red Storm Rising. Is it going to want to make me never play Harpoon ever again? <laughs> yeah, I, I played Harpoon way back in the 80s. And to me, Harpoon was kind of like Air War. Yes, it was, exactly. It was an excellent game, but boy, there was a lot of math in there. I, I laughed because I was going through my storage unit this uh, this weekend, you know, going through boxes and boxes of games. And I pulled out Harpoon and it said, quick to learn, fun to play. I'm like, oh, what a lie. <laughs> that is not true at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're coming out with expansions for Thunderbolt Apache Leader. Also, right now, we're working on expansions for Hornet Leader and as well as Israeli Air Force Leader, Corsair Leader. So we're getting a chance to go back and say, this was a great core design, but wouldn't it be fun to throw in more aircraft, more scenarios? So things there's a lot and then we have lots of warfighter stuff planned we have the fantasy warfighter we also plan on doing like a red dawn kind of cold war warfighter where you're the wolverines basically fighting off the (laughs) russians for all of his children of the 80s thank you very much (laughs) um so all kinds of stuff planned it's going to be a busy year or two and what's been especially helpful for us is we're now working with like Benjamin Chi and several other people who design warfighter modules for us. And so what that does is, you know, because DVG is a tiny company. There's myself, my wife, Holly, son, Kevin, his wife, Sarah. And that's, you know, everyone else that we work with. And, you know, luckily because of the magic of the internet, we work with designers and artists that are spread across Asia and Europe. And, you know, we're all over the place. But realistically, it's just the four of us. And so by working with outside design people, it allows them to make the expansions, whereas we get to then focus on the core games. And that allows us to do a lot more as a company. And it's it's been, you know, 2019, 2020 are both awesome years for us. Well, it's good to hear. I, I, you know, I really look forward to uh, getting my hands on a couple of the titles that I haven't tried yet. And uh, hopefully I'll find time to expand my way through uh, the Warfighter series and a couple of the other ones uh, out there, uh, especially, you know, obviously some of the general series, uh, seeing both uh, Rommel and Alexander there. Uh, I, I had not been exposed to either of those titles at all. I'm like, ooh, that's one more thing that kind of kind of might draw me in. So um, we'll have to see how that goes in the next year. Well, 
want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us and uh, and definitely to share a lot about solo play, the, the game design piece. Um, is there any advice you'd give budding game designers out there? Either a mistake not to make that, that you have, as Dan, have uh, have proven uh, DVG games never wants to make that mistake again or or that little nugget of wisdom that, hey, if you can get this right, then uh, then you might you might make it. The biggest thing is find good people to work with because no matter how talented or skilled you might be as a designer, an artist, or whatever, you're not going to bring all of the skills that you need to the table. And for me, it's hard to find good people to work with because you need to find people that are both technically skilled as well as personalities that you're willing to spend eight hours a day in a stressful situation playing the same game over and over and over because you know people will play our games five ten twenty times but by the time the game goes out the door i played the thing like a hundred times so over the people in the company and it kind of loses its funness after the first couple dozen plays. And invariably, it's either too hot or too cold or somebody's hungry or somebody's not in the mood to play yet again. And there's a bit of a stress factor there. And you have to get along with the people that you work with and they have to be talented. And so it's important to find the right team to work with. Awesome. Yeah, I have to say I'm blessed with the team that I have on Lead Pursuit. Brett and Chris keep me honest, but uh, I think they might be challenged if they had to spend eight hours a day <laughs> testing with me. I, Brett and I have tried that a little bit, and I thought he was going to have his eyes glaze over doing some Vietnam play testing. <laughs> nah, you you uh, you put up with my slowness, so. Yeah, I did have to explain the rules again and again. Well, that's that's awesome. And Dan, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's, it's cool to get to talk to, um, you know, one of the guys that uh, – you know, designed games that I played years ago and has now continued and grown the business and, and has broadened the spectrum of games that you're producing. I look forward to playing some of those and uh, hopefully seeing some other members of the Blood Red Skies Ready Room uh, playing a few of your games out there and, uh, and giving us some feedback. And hopefully we'll have you back on uh, to talk about all the new stuff coming out later this year. Thanks. Yeah, so that'd be great. And thank you very much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. No, absolutely. 